0: Hello and welcome back to She Done It. Today, I've got something slightly different for you. This is, in fact, the beginning of my summer break. I'll be completely honest with you, I'm a bit nervous about even saying that because I'm really, really bad at taking time off and doing things I love and I secretly believe that you'll all abandon me if I stop even for a second. But I think it's going to be better for the show all round if I have this little holiday. I've had a really busy year, what with launching the She Done It book club, making a podcast every other week, and having my book published back in June, plus all the publicity work and so on that goes with that. Plus, of course, I have a day job as a freelance writer as well. As part of that job, I wrote a series of articles a few months back about podcasting and burnout, and I think I would be a hypocrite if I didn't take the advice of all the people I spoke with during that project. Therefore, I'm taking the next three episodes off to enjoy my summer, regroup, and work on some ideas for what comes next. That means the next full episode of She Done It will be on the 4th of September, so mark your calendars now. The book club, by the way, will continue unchanged over the summer, so if you'd like to keep up with your detective fiction listening, I recommend that you join now to get access to the bonus audio content I send out to members. There are book-specific episodes and extended cuts of interviews for the main show, as well as the Brilliant Members Forum, all for a mere £5 a month. And of course, your contribution makes this podcast's continued existence possible. Find out more and sign up at shedoneitshow.com slash membership. However, I'm not going to leave you completely bereft in my absence. One of the great things about podcasting is all the people you get to know through making audio and two of my friends have very kindly stepped in to keep you entertained while I take this much-needed break. Today, you're going to hear an episode made by Helen Zaltzman for her language-based podcast, The Illusionist, called Alter Ego. It's three different acts about times when names are obscured or changed, and one of them actually features my voice talking about pseudonyms in detective fiction, so you won't be missing me that much. If you enjoy it, then please do go and subscribe to The Illusionist in your podcast app, Or, if you already do that, consider leaving the show a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing it with a friend to show your appreciation both of Helen's excellent work and also of her support of me and She Done It. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. And how a young filipino woman named josefina guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of world war ii i'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking as i love puzzles and to me it often feels like the real life counterpart to solving a mystery i loved the episode called the unbreakable navajo code about a group of native american soldiers who devised a code for the allies use and i also really enjoyed the one about emily Anderson an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now,
1: first on BBC Sounds. Part 1. Doe, a deer, a female deer, and also an unidentified corpse. Doe, 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 doe. John Doe, who is John Doe? An unidentified dead man. Or in a legal case, and a name that's fake. The female equivalent is
2: Jane.
1: John, a very common name That is followed up by Doe You'll find it in a court case When the plaintiff's incognito-o-o It's on brand for John Doe that nobody's sure who he was Or why his name came to be used for a man alive or dead Identity unknown or concealed in a legal matter Today, it's mostly just the USA that recasts people as John Doe and female counterpart Jane Doe. But the practice originated in English law a few hundred years ago, at least as far back as the 1600s, if not earlier. And every time I bring up historical English law on the show, I have to remind you that, yes, it's a bonkers system. Just strap in and ride along with me. You'll enjoy watching Twin Peaks a lot more once you accept it's not all going to make narrative sense. So, to the now obsolete legal process known as an action of ejectment, which was, if you were a landowner in England and there were squatters on your property, or your tenants hadn't been paying up, or someone had unjustly kicked you off the land you owned, the law didn't offer you much help at all to get them to pay or leave or let you back in. The process was expensive and likely to fail. But the law might be more helpful to your fictitious tenant John Doe, if you brought an action of ejectment on his behalf against the person who ejected him from the property, the, also fictitious, Richard Rowe. Doe, a deer, a female deer, Rowe, another kind of deer. So to recap, a fictional plaintiff versus a fictional defendant. The lawsuit would state that you, the real you, had leased your property to John Doe, fake tenant, and then fake Richard Rowe had ejected John Doe from the property or otherwise screwed him over, the court would see that John Doe had a real lease from you, the landowner, which isn't too hard for you to supply to John Doe since he's your imaginary friend. And Richard Rowe would have to appear in court to contest this, except as he's a fake person, the real defendant would have to show up on his behalf instead, or not show up and automatically be ruled against. If he did turn up, he'd have to provide a bunch of not-fake evidence to show that the land was his, or admit to the court that the lease, and John Doe, and Richard Rowe were fake. So the case would usually go the way of the real landowner. And by the way, this system developed as a substitute for a system that was deemed too complicated. Can you imagine? Another option for invoking John Doe was before anyone even tried to take your property. You could preempt all of this by launching a lawsuit against a fake John Doe who'd trespassed or squatted on your land and thus prove your ownership. If there were more than two fake people involved in a Doe versus Roe case, they'd often be called John Stiles and Richard Miles, John Noakes, or sometimes John Goodwright, Henry Woodbergood, Lawrence Lovelittle, Thomas No-Title. Really going for plausibility there. The practice of fake defendants and fake plaintiffs goes back to ancient Roman law, where Numerius Negidius might face a lawsuit from Aulus Agerius. Both were kind of joke names, Agerius referring to the verb to set in motion, and Numerius Negidius roughly translating to, I refuse to pay. Latin still appears in cases now where an anonymized person might be referred to by the initials NN nomen nescio, meaning I do not know the name. The fake courtroom enemies John Doe and Richard Rowe were abolished in British law in 1852, although John Doe popped back up in 2005 when J.K. Rowling served an unusual John Doe injunction against anyone, known or unknown, who sold, obtained or disclosed part or all of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince prior to the book's official publication. So, in that case, the John Doe's weren't fictional offenders so much as potential ones. And John Doe continues to have a media profile, as the unidentified body on a slab in a TV forensics drama, or the murderer in the film Seven. In American legal cases, he and his female counterpart, Jane Doe, are cover names for people who are unknown or unidentified or deliberately anonymised. And James Doe. Judy Doe. Junior Doe, Mary Moe, Mary Major might appear in federal cases in the US. Perhaps the most famous example of the legal placeholder names, Roe v. Wade, the pseudonym Jane Roe versus the real name Henry Wade, ruled on the same day in 1973 as another pseudonymous abortion case, Mary Doe v. Arthur K. Bolton. A 1988 deposition in the US really ran with the John Doe pattern, naming Brett Bo, Carla Coe, Donna Doe, Frank Foe, Grace Goe, Harry Ho, Marta Moe, Norma Noe, Paula Poe, Ralph Rowe, Sammy Soe, Tommy Toe, Vince Voe, William Woe, and Xerxes Zoe. John Doe left a legacy, even though we can't say who he is, or was. Or why he's named after a doe, a deer, a female deer. To be honest, him being named after a deer is the least incomprehensible thing about this. That will bring us back back to legally anonymised John Doe. Doe. Part two, my wheel self.
3: I remember when when I first started, it was like a coming of age, like funnest thing, trying to think of your name. You're trying to think of something that like, for me, related to my job, some people it's like a book they love, an author or, you know, something like that, a place they're from, a link to their heritage or something, you know. Sometimes just a really good joke. Yeah, exactly. Some people just make up a pun and go with it.
4: A lot of people like love punning in roller derby. That seems to be quite the trend. <laughs> so, people spend a lot of time thinking up a name uh, and trying to get exactly the right kind of wordplay with exactly the right connotations that isn't gonna kind of reflect negatively on them, but it's also, it's also clever.
1: And roller derby names are rare examples of puns I can get on board with. Here at this London versus Oxford roller derby bout, I can see Sirius Whack, Aphrodite for Destruction, Gemolition and Claire Force One whizzing around the track there are pun-free names on the teams as well, some real surnames, some just words laced with a little threat, like damage and punching ovaries.
4: My name currently actually is just Brat, uh, but originally it was Brat Worst, um, and this is like a really silly, it has like no real like intelligent origins, but um, when I first started playing roller derby, I'd just been living in Austria, um, you know where the Brat Worst (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a very common snack um, and so I felt like a kind of affiliation with like Germanic culture and um, like my parents always used to call me a brat when I was a kid because I, I was a little a little nightmare um, and so I just felt like it was kind of it was a silly like because it sounded a bit punk I don't know over the years like, I dropped the worst because it actually has kind of like negative connotations but also I, I just feel like brat is sufficient <laughs>
2: That's good.
1: And it's efficient because it's one syllable. Yeah, it's letters. easy to shout. Brat, brat, brat. Easy to, <laughs> easy to like
2: put on garments if you're embroidering it. Very,
4: very. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, I have it
2: very. <laughs> have it on a garment. So if it's like sixteen letters, it wouldn't
5: fit. My derby name is Ursa Mamer. It's obviously a pun on the constellation Ursa Major. I've always been kind of a space nerd, but like also Ursa means bear in Latin, and it's pretty badass to be called bear while I'm on the derby track. Uh, Being trans, I have some baggage with names in general, right? So I've probably given a bit more thought to the idea of names than a lot of people might. And my derby name was almost as big a deal to me as my real name, which is Callie, by the way. I have a mega case of imposter syndrome. And I'm always thinking and wondering and worrying if I really belong in certain places, especially among these incredible athletes that I play roller derby with. And I should also add that I think it's silly to think that way, but it's how my brain works. I think anyone who's willing to show up and do work belongs there. Everyone except me, of course, because we're always less kind to ourselves than others, right? So when I'm on the track and I hear someone call me Ursa, it's a really, really big deal.
6: Well, I skated for about six months as Foxy Brown, actually. Um, But I was never, I didn't feel connected to that name. Um, And so then we spent probably six months, actually, thinking of, of something that was a bit more connected to me rather than just a name I liked. I am obsessed with Beyonce and... So I was trying to think of something that brought her in and obviously her name is Sasha Fierce, her stage name. And then we ended up with Basha Fierce. And I feel like it suits the game as well. Uh, Although people would shorten it to Bash the whole time. So for the most part, people don't know where it came from, but um, that's the original origin. (laughs)
4: A lot of people are just dropping like roller derby names altogether. So there's a bit of a kind of shift in the the culture where some people really feel like they strongly identify with having a roller derby name. And some people are like, actually, do you know what? I want to take myself more seriously as an athlete and maybe I'll just skate under my real name. But um, I don't think that'll ever be me. But yeah.
1: So it's a it's a kind of validation thing that people don't want the names.
4: Um, I think no, I, not necessarily. But I think some people, um, as like roller derby become increasingly popular. For example, our A team playing like international tournaments. Um, you know, it's been on the BBC, um, like the World Cup uh, last year. And uh, I think actually people started to feel like maybe I want to have have myself recognised for like who I am really, rather than like a persona. Although there are people who really feel like becoming a persona is part of like how they perform. So I think it's it really varies. Right, so it's just like whether it's easy
1: to access your inner roller derby without it. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly.
3: My roller derby name um, was, when I first started, Helvetica Black. As someone who works with graphic design and typefaces, it was a perfect spooky pun on, um, you know, a related kind of thing for me. However, I kind of changed it back to my um, given name. There was a bit of a move away from roller derby names, especially in LRG. A lot of us kind of dropped them. Why was that? I think there was just a feeling that it wasn't um, reflective of where we were going as athletes. We were starting to call ourselves athletes, working out a lot, wearing proper sports gear. We weren't wearing fishnets and mad makeup and safety pins anymore. Um, So a lot of us kind of moved moved that way, Uh, but I really disliked my surname so I kept the black bit from Helvetica. Black And I moved the Helvetica to, like, a middle name, if you will. So now I skate under the snappy Katie Helvetica Black. Do you feel, though, like
1: you could prove that you can be an athlete and wear fishnets and wild makeup?
3: Yeah, definitely. And some people kept their their Royal Joby names the whole time, and some people never had them. Some people never wore fishnets and frilly skirts and some people love it and wear, wear whatever they want and that's the beauty of roller derby really. You can. There's space for everyone, there's space for whatever you want to wear or look like or call yourself. I actually skate
2: under my normal name which is Kate Russell and the reason for that is because I hate my roller derby name. What happened there? Well when I first started playing everybody was so excited to come up with their names and it was this real thing and I think I just panicked and I forgot anything about my personality or anything that I liked and I just um, thought right I used to like the Beatles when I was younger. Strawberry wheels, I guess. (laughs) Which is, A, not a good pun, and B, it doesn't mean anything, and it's not very funny, so... um, It's quite a sweet pun, but it could (laughs) refer to a shopping trolley, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, or, yeah, literally anything. Maybe a car, even. Um, So I really quickly shortened it to Straubs, which I do get called, but then that means that I have to explain my terrible Derby name a lot of the time. So my shirt says Russell. Were you not tempted to be? like? okay i don't like straws i'll think up another one well yeah um i still long to be called crapbag. bag that... <laughs> is that is that because you have low self-esteem or is it a friend's reference <laughs> i just think yeah i think it's a friend's reference and i just think it's really funny <laughs> it's
6: it's not mandatory to have a name um i felt like i wanted one but if you don't that's okay too yeah. Is it nice having this sort of alternative
1: self that you can step into?
6: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's why I do it, because I feel like um, in, I work in the corporate world, and so I spend a lot of time fitting into a very specific box, and this feels like a good opportunity not to be in that box, and to kind of do what I like within the rules of the game.
1: <laughs> Smash
4: the box. Right. <laughs> I would say um, there's probably about 20% real names um, and then about 80% Derby names at this point. Is there a problem if more than one person has the same Derby name? Yeah, you don't do that, that's not the done thing. Back when I started playing roller derby, there was this website called Two Evils, and this was a database of like every roller derby player in the world. In order to like register officially as a roller derby player, you had to go on Two Evils, check that no one had the name. So quite often you'd be like, you think you've had like the best name, uh, and then you just go and check it. Someone in like, you know, Alabama has that name, so. No!
1: there's so much pressure to come up with a really good joke
2: yes exactly and it's with you forever it's on your shirt and it sticks and if it's bad then but then people do change them don't they yeah people do change them sometimes um and this is really mundane but if you change them you have to buy new shirts and that gets
3: expensive (laughs) i see the issue yeah (laughs) yeah some of them have got really rude swear words in them Um, and they have to be censored when it comes to kind of... Because it's a family event.
7: Um, Yeah, so my name is Hump Me. um, And it's a whole story because I'm not native English, uh, so I'm from Belgium. And when I chose my name, um, I thought Hump Me meant jump over me. Like, because I'm small, I'm a little skater. So I chose my name, Hump Me. And then when I moved to uh, London two years ago, um, people were like, why do you have such a sexual name it is suggestive yeah and I was like what do you mean what what do you mean I really didn't know and then yeah they told me it's a yeah like sexual name (laughs) I was like oh my god so it's a bit embarrassing now it was especially funny because we were talking about it in a conversation I was saying yeah I don't really like sexual derby names like some people really have a very suggestive or very uh, explicit derby name and I was just saying like I don't like it and then they were like Yeah, but what about your name? I was like, huh? Because I thought it was literally like jump over me. But yeah, it's not. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I think about changing it, but I'm already skating with it for seven years now. So yeah, people know me by my name. So yeah.
3: I'm going to swear. I'm sure there was someone called Ponyfucker.
1: It's not really a joke there, is there? No.
3: Yeah, people who really work in kind of swearing to their names. Probably have moved away from them. Um so it seems
1: like the classy the classy move. Move. Or just do you think you have how many opportunities do you have
3: to come up with an an alternative identity? Exactly. It's it's really a I think it's a really unique and special part of the sport where you can a lot of people come to roller derby and they're like, my lifestyle changed or I've moved to a new city. For some reason they kind of find roller derby. And it's, for a lot of us, the first time that we're immersed in this group of like strong, independent women who are running the thing for themselves, doing this amazing, really cool and fun contact sport, being good at it. And yeah, like you said, it's a chance to be like, oh, actually, I'm going to make up this alter ego if you want. Or just make up a name and have a silly pun if you want. Or just own your given name and just write that on the back of your shirt if you want. Part three, cover story. So a lot
0: of crime writers of the 1930s and 40s used pseudonyms partly because writing detective fiction was seen as something not
1: particularly desirable for an author to be doing. Caroline Crampton makes the podcast She Done It, unravelling the mysteries of classic detective stories. The 1930s and 40s were something of a golden era of crime fiction. It was a popular genre, uh, but it didn't
0: have the greatest literary reputation, perhaps. So they might separate off their detective fiction enterprise with a different name for that reason. Quite a judgmental time in publishing, as it were. And oh. therefore people sort of separating out their literary output and their detective output, because detective output, whilst being wildly popular, was seen
1: as lesser or not as prestigious and so on. But they still wrote the crime fiction. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Why? If, if it was all a bit shameful? Because it made money.
0: It made loads of money. <laughs> the best example of this, I found, is um, Cecil Day-Lewis, father of Daniel Day-Lewis. Cecil Day-Lewis was like a very serious poet and he was Britain's poet laureate. But he also wrote over, I think it's over 20 detective novels under the name Nicholas Blake, which he explicitly started doing because poetry was not bringing in enough money.
1: Wow. How things have changed. You're right, yes. (laughs) Did no one know at the time that Cecil Day-Lewis was also Nicholas Blake?
0: So his publishers definitely knew that he was Nicholas Blake and he was also part of the Detection Club, this little literary society that Agatha Christie and people like that were in. So, you know, people did literally know it was him, but they didn't put it on the books. You know, Nicholas Blake brackets Cecil Day-Lewis. So it was definitely a kind of an anonymous side hustle, you might call it in today's parlance. But they are good. They are interesting. He had a a clever central detective figure that recurred across lots of the books and they had interesting settings and plots. And I think even though maybe there was something that he really just started as a money-making enterprise, he did really like detective fiction and he really got into it and he did put effort in. I don't think He considered it lesser work in that sense. It was just how it was perceived externally. One of the reasons why it was seen as a bit lesser or embarrassing for a a sort of high-blown literary author to write detective fiction was just because it was so incredibly popular. And there's still, I think, that same lingering prejudice against writers who work in genres, whether it's sci-fi or crime or fantasy or romance, that So you know, just because something shifts a lot of units, it sells a lot of books, it must therefore be low brow. So there's definitely a lot of that operating um, at the time when crime writers were picking pseudonyms in the twenties, thirties, and forties. That you know, I need one name for the stuff that a lot of people are going to read, and then I need a separate name for the stuff that only a few but very important people are going to read. It's just this bizarre expression of genre prejudice, I think, in lots of ways, and. Even more so because in the case of Cecil Day-Lewis and Nicholas Blake, Nicholas Blake was funding Cecil Day-Lewis. It wasn't the other way around, but for some reason, the less profitable but more prestigious thing could be his own name and the thing that paid his bills had to be a different name.
1: I always find it a bit unnecessary when people are like, who is Elena Ferrante? Who's the real person behind Mm. Elena Ferrante? Because I always think, well, it's just a person. You know, what difference does it make? But I can understand now when you've got a uh, highfalutin writer behind these novels, why people think it's an exciting thing to uncover who's behind the pseudonym.
0: Exactly. I think that's something that pseudonyms have always had is this element of mystery compounded when it's actually a mystery or crime novel that they're writing. But yeah, there is that feeling of well, there have been occasions when it was someone I'd already heard of. So maybe it is this time. Eleanor Franti is a really good example. J.K. Rowling is Robert Galbraith. Yeah, someone going back in the day, someone like Cecil Day-Lewis writing as Nicholas Blake. Agatha Christie writing as Mary Westmacott. So there are all these examples when it was somebody quite famous. Like it's a big scoop to out a pseudonymous author if it turns out to be somebody famous. And that's why you get these you know, constant investigations and probes into who is Eleanor Ferrante, really.
1: But then Agatha Christie was her real name. So she was writing the crime fiction under her real name. It wasn't like, oh, the shame of it. I'm going to hide behind uh, the image of Agatha Christie.
0: So Agatha Christie is a really interesting example in that because, yes, Agatha Christie was her real name or rather it was her married name. It was her name from her first husband. And when her husband left her and they got divorced, She actually wanted to start using a pseudonym at that point because, you know, she didn't really want to carry on writing with her ex-husband who had cheated on her, etc. name on all her books. But her publisher was like, no, Agatha Christie is the brand now. We can't change that. So even though she subsequently got married to somebody else, she wasn't ever allowed to publish under a different name. Um, And I think that's why she did invent this completely alternative pseudonym for herself of Mary Westmacott, where she published, and people call them romance novels, but I think they're really just slightly psychological, almost like kitchen sink plots that don't have any murder or thriller element to them. And she did that under this completely separate name. And I think perhaps that was slightly fulfilling her desire to just not be Agatha Christie for a bit. And also that classic thing that a lot of very popular authors have of wanting to find out whether people read them because they are popular or whether what they do is actually any good.
1: That is so galling. A little note to anyone who is choosing a pen name, just make sure it's not anything associated with a relationship.
0: Yeah, so at the time when her first novel was published, Agatha Christie was just her name. She was perfectly happily married and obviously thought she was going to be for the rest of her life. But, you know circumstances change, bad things happen. And yeah, so she was sort of shackled to the name of her ex-husband, who also, after their divorce, got remarried to someone else as well. So there was another Mrs Christie out there. So it can't have been great for them either to see that this now world-famous best-selling author was still using this name.
1: But Agatha Christie also uh, married someone else, didn't she? So I imagine for them seeing her ex-husband's name on the cover of all of her books would have been an irritant.
0: Yeah, she married an archaeologist called Max Mallowan and that's actually, coincidentally, where some of her... You know, books that touch on archaeology come from was that she used to accompany him to digs in the Middle East. They'd spend six months of the year in Syria or whatever, and she would write a novel while she's there. So that's how she came to write things like murder in Mesopotamia and stuff, because she had actually been to Mesopotamia. Interestingly, she published an autobiography about their travels to the Middle East that's called Come Tell Me How You Live, uh, which apparently she wrote because so many people just kept asking her, what's it like to do archaeology in the Middle East that she was like I will just write a book and then I can tell people to buy the book and they can stop asking me about it Um, but in that autobiography she's credited as Agatha Christie Mallowan so she did you know try and hint at the fact that yes I'm Agatha Christie whatever but also that's not really my name
1: There's more about crime author's pseudonyms in She Done It episode 14 Pseudonyms focusing on Helen Fields AKA HS Chandler, and also Josephine Tay, AKA Gordon Daviot. Neither of those were the author's real name. You can find She Done It at The Pod Hearing Places and Shedoneitshow.com, where you can also join the book club that Caroline has just started for the show. So if you enjoy detective fiction, get amongst it. Before that, you heard from the London Roller Girls Brat, Helvetica Black, Basha Fears, Kate Russell, and Hump Me. Visit LondonRollerGirls.com to find out more about them and their upcoming fixtures. You also heard from Ursa Maimher, a.k.a. Callie Wright of the podcast Queersplaining. Find it at queersplaining.com.
0: it for today's guest broadcast a reminder that you can find the illusionist at theillusionist.org and in all good podcast apps so do go and binge your way through the rest of the show now i've got two more guest episodes coming up for you in august and then i'll be back with a new she done it on the 4th of september in the meantime you can find me chilling out with a detective novel in the she done it book club forum available to paying supporters of the podcast through she slash membership Tune in on the 7th of August for the next guest episode.